From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. This week, we dive into part two of our mini-series on welfare, 25 years after reform. And well, there's no denying it. The welfare reform of 1996 was a massive success. Welfare caseloads, which hadn't dropped significantly for 50 years, fell by 60%. The child poverty rate, which hadn't moved for 25 years, suddenly dropped by a third. Overall, the poverty rate for single-parent families has dropped by two-thirds, and this success goes beyond work in poverty. Before reform, pregnancy and birth rates for unmarried teens quadrupled. But with welfare reform, this trend reversed. But in a tale as old as time, liberals want to turn back the clock and make welfare one-way handouts that promote social marginalization and impede upward mobility. The Biden administration has massively expanded welfare benefits under the guise of child tax credits. If made permanent, it would be the second largest increase in the welfare system. So why do liberals think this would be a good idea? Today, our guest Jason Turner helps us understand the opposing viewpoint. He also walks us through what happens to an individual and a society when they stop working. Turner formerly served as New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani's Commissioner of Human Resources Administration. And before New York, he led the state of Wisconsin to develop an epic, fully work-based alternative to welfare. Our conversation after this short break. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift. So, Jason, we're now at 25 years since the United States reformed work and marriage requirements in our welfare system. Has the United States seen improvement since that 1996 reform? Oh, yes, there were dramatic improvements, in particular for the first five years, and then it flattened, leveled out. But uh, during the first five years, uh, welfare dependency went from 5 million cases nationwide to 2 million cases. That was tremendous um, uh, uh, improvement. And it wasn't because people were just leaving welfare and going home and sitting on the couch. They were taking jobs uh, by the thousands. Yeah, is there any idea as to why it flattened out? Yes, there is an idea as to why it flattened out. First, there is the phenomenon of getting the getting the most people off welfare and into work, and then uh, initially, and then after a certain period of time, it never goes down to zero, uh, but it flattens out because most of the people uh, who can work are in the labor force. That's what happened in the first uh, uh, five years. And then since then, it's been stable and never and has not come up again. Despite these successes, the Biden administration is seeking to expand welfare and undo this reform, and they're doing it under the guise of child tax credits. 
Can you explain to me how these tax credits work? Yes, these tax credits. It's a uh, it's a it's a, a way of seducing the public by not using the word welfare. But welfare is exactly what it is. A tax credit is something you get when you have earned income and you get a deduction for certain expenses. But uh, when you get money back from the IRS for income that you never earned, it's not a credit. It's not a deduction. It's welfare. And that's what's happening. But they use that term to seduce the public. And it's, I don't think it's honest. Uh, in any event, um, these credits are very extensive. And if you take uh, the amount of welfare that was previously available over the course of a year to an average family in the United States that was accessing welfare, the total benefits from uh, TANF or welfare cash and food stamps together on average was about $11,000, $11,500 per family before. Now, after this new money dump, the same family will be accessing $19,500. These calculations come from Doug Besheroff of the University of Maryland. So you can see what an extensive change it is. And with that much extra money, given the fact that um, welfare, uh, that earned a minimum wage is only about $15,000 nationally, there's going to be more money to, for sitting at home than going to work. And this is going to have a tremendous detrimental effect to families everywhere. It makes me think of the current situation with the, the workforce and people not going back to work after COVID. Would this hit at a time that would undermine any efforts to get people back to work? You can see through uh, the severe labor shortage after COVID that many people have gotten used to living at home, working from home, or not working at all. And once you break the work habit, which we all have, uh, when we get out of school, those of us in the middle class, once you break that habit, it's very difficult to reestablish it because um, uh, uh, regular work, if you can avoid it for a certain period, uh, uh, for a certain population, um, can't be restored that easily. And that's what we're seeing happen. And what we can expect with this $19,500 of free income without work will be a disaster. People leaving the uh, school, high school, will opt either to stay at home and receive $20,000 a year or to go to work. And work is, for all of us, when we first get out of school, is tedious. Most of it is. And uh, it's, it's hard. And so they won't establish those habits. And increasingly, the young population will be exiting the labor force and not establishing uh, their credentials. So on Heritage Explains, we like to flip the issue around sometimes and try and see things through the left's perspective. How is it that liberals think that these, this huge chunk of money for no work is going to help the poor? For liberals, the single metric that they care about is income level. So if 
a family doesn't have uh, enough income by their measurement, their standard default um, recommendation is to transfer or give free money to the family. They have the opinion that if you look around and you see that the middle class has a higher income than the dependent class, they say the answer uh, is to just uh, make the middle make the, the the poor closer in income level to those people who go to work every day, and their lives will somehow be transformed by that money coming into the household. Of course, it's nonsense, but it's never put that way by the academic. Can you describe for us some of the effects of long-term unemployment or what happens when you aren't working? So these are six characteristics of people that are subject to enforced idleness. In other words, their lives are not dominated by an eight-hour workday. First, the family goes in, the individuals affected go into social isolation. They don't interact anymore with colleagues. And they also interact less with their neighbors. They actually withdraw from voluntary associations and other kinds of activities that used to occupy their their time. The second thing that goes up is family stress, because uh, where you're not outside of the house working during the day, when you're inside of the house all of the time, or most of the time, your stress level goes up and family functioning goes down. The next thing that happens is there's decline in physical health. In other words, people that go on disability or long-term unemployment, they're the healthiest right when they go on the system and their, and their physical health declines over time. The next thing that happens is mental health declines when you're in enforced idleness. idleness. Um, uh, uh, in addition to physical health, many different indicators for that. The next thing that happens is drug use goes up. And so enforced idleness makes uh, a whole day available, a boring day. And so this is, substance, this is often uh, filled with drugs that become addictive. So there is absolutely no good thing that comes out of giving someone $20,000 of free income without having to work. It's a disaster. So interesting. I can't help but kind of see the parallel between what a lot of people experienced during um, the lockdowns with COVID and forced idleness from that perspective. You yeah, kind of know that it's that. absolutely true what you're saying because we saw so much of that when people had to stop working. Precisely. Um, you know, for most people, unless you're a Renaissance man, for most people, the core of their day must be must revolve around getting out and contributing to others in the community and the society and the economy by putting in a workday. If you lose that core responsibility and activity, uh, society declines. Reminds me of another episode that we did on Heritage Explains on the dignity of work. Precisely. The other thing the left wants to do is they want to separate dignity by by its connection to work, and they want to substitute income level, which can be transferred income, in terms of dignity. So if you have $20,000 of new money, are you going to be like a middle-class family? That's what, that's what the, the left believes. 
Right. So in conclusion, what are some of the ways that Congress can instead build off of the 1996 reform and actually help families? The thing we learned from the 1996 reform is first how really easy it is if the state is set up properly to do this, to get people into employment. So at one time, 20 or 30 years ago, we thought in order to get people who are uh, unemployed and have never been employed into the labor force, we had to impart what we called, um, uh, we had to give them skills, which would give them a, a, a human capacity to make a contribution to an employer. And until we educated them with uh, school and skills training, they wouldn't be able to enter the labor force. Once they had those skills, they could, on their own, voluntarily get a job. That turned out to be not true, and it was uh, studied for a long time with many um, treatment and controls. Instead, what we found was that if you require an individual to occupy his day, either working or studying or, or, or in training, one of those three, most people will choose to go right to work in a job that they qualify for, including an entry-level job. And they'll make more money than, uh, than they would if they were in training. And then finally, they'll, they'll improve their life circumstances and their income over time by moving up the employment ladder. So we have to go back to um, connecting benefits, TANF benefits, to work obligation, which has been lost. And many states are retreating from it because they don't have to do it anymore uh, as imposed as a requirement by the federal government. So that's a big, that's a big issue that we need to address in Congress. Thank you so much for your expertise on this issue, and hopefully we can talk to you again on this same topic. Thank you for having me. I I hope to have that opportunity. And that's it for this episode of Heritage Explains. If you liked this week's episode, do us a favor, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It really does help conservative shows like us break through the liberal noise. Thanks, and Tim will be up next week with a special guest for our last episode on welfare, 25 years after reform. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Descher, with editing by John Pop.